Okay, so um, this is the first class of the Transforming the Analytical Mind, or as, as I wrote in the description, maybe maturing the analytical mind in certain ways. And so my hope is that we're going to come away with a better sense of what that is and uh, how it actually plays a role on the path, because it does, and also what there is beyond it. You know, what, what can we rely on if we've, even if we've mostly relied on this during our life, because it is certainly encouraged in our society to, um, to rely on this type of mind. Um, so I noticed in the introductions that nobody had any problems with the word analytical mind. Everybody uh, understood intuitively what that is. I'm not claiming that I have some exact psychological definition of what this is, but it is something that we understand experientially. It's the mind that's, other words might be, someone said the intelligent mind, or we might also say rational, logical, in certain specialized circumstances, scientific, something like that. But it also would apply to other fields like law or things that, um, that use that kind of thinking. So it's, it's just meant to be something that we know from our experience. And I, I would even say that this is maybe more like the analytical aspect of our mind because we have other aspects. And also because I think everybody has this aspect, even if you're you know, a, a comedian or some completely different line of work, I think this, this is just a function that the mind can do. And it's something that we've developed and valued to different degrees in our lives, as well as maybe having been born with some proclivity toward it. Um, so just to, to be clear, even though we have an intuitive sense, this aspect of mind is used for things like planning, deciding, evaluating, analyzing, organizing, debating, that kind of, those kinds of functions. Um, modern life in the West encourages heavy use of this kind of mind, even if you don't want to, just to organize your calendar. You know, you've got to have some, some kind of sense like that. And people who don't think this way are driven crazy by having to do all the things that are required, you know, if, if you live a Western life of that type. Of course, not everybody does in our society, but it is highly valued um, and we place great authority in it also probably to no other degree in history has this kind of thinking been deemed just automatically um, authoritative, important, useful. Uh, there are other cultures where it's not <laughs> considered that way. Uh, this is something fairly unusual. Not that it's at all focused only on the West. That would be a Western bias. I think um, there are societies in Asia today that are at least as analytical as, say, the United mm -hmm. States is. Um, but it is a modern phenomenon. It's something that wasn't really so prominent, except in the last several hundred years, let's say. But don't worry, we're not going to go into a long historical analysis. Um, even people who are not in analytical lines of work are influenced, therefore, by our societies valuing and authoritizing this kind of mind. So it, it really has a widespread effect. Um, but Nonetheless, there are, there are certainly helpful ways that it can be used. I mean, of course, it's helpful when it's used in, for good to help society. Uh, if you're an engineer, a lawyer, a scientist, all kinds of good comes from those things. But often we're 
we're not really using this mind to its full potential when it's engaged in mundane tasks like that. Uh, I'm gonna suggest that um, there's, there's ways to use it in Dharma practice before we get to the stage of expanding or letting it go that are useful. And we also may need training. If we've relied on this kind of mind, it may be a little scary to let go of that into some other way of knowing, which is eventually asked of us on the path. So also I noticed in what people said at the beginning that uh, there's a little bit of aversion or sense that it's an obstacle or conflict or wish that we could work with it better somehow. There was language kind of like that. And it's certainly true that thinking or and this function of the mind, I don't think it's only thinking, but um, doesn't come off well in spiritual circles, let's say. Um, Often people assume that meditation is about ending thought, that we're supposed to enter some kind of a thought-free state. I hope, um, I hope you don't think that. It's not, that's not actually required. Um, but even if a person doesn't think that necessarily, spiritual teachers are some of the worst for telling people that this is a bad thing that they should be doing, they should not be thinking, this part of their mind is useless, the, the rational brain has nothing to do with the opening of the heart and the spiritual side of being. Uh, there can be a lot of language like that that right from the outset uh, creates a feeling of, uh, like, oh, this part that's so important to me is, is wrong or is not, doesn't have a place. Well, that's not... Um, that's not very compassionate, actually. And we will end up using all of ourselves. We'll bring all of ourselves to our, our spiritual life. So I don't think it's a very helpful to tell people that this is an unspiritual aspect of themselves. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we don't want to just sit on the cushion and think. Uh, discursive thought is an obstacle. It's, it's part of it's some of the hindrances, if that's all we're doing with our mind. So what I'm advocating then is a more nuanced understanding of the analytical mind so that we can see in what ways is it helpful, in what ways is it not, what steps can be taken using the helpful part of it to, in some ways, uh, move beyond it. Um, so that's maybe a lot for six weeks, but that's kind of the hope <laughs> is to uh, familiarize us with that. Um, so there are many different ways of using this part of the mind. Some are not very helpful for developing our mind over time and others are quite helpful. Um, eventually, we do find ways to relate to experience that is not so analytical. Um, but and in deep meditation and during awakening experiences, it's dropped completely. So you know, in that sense, the spiritual teachers are right. Uh, however, um, we can start with using our analytical mind skillfully, in a sense. Mm -hmm. So for example, just right up front, reading the suttas, reflection, skillful thinking, uh, these are all mundane uses of the analytical mind, but are very helpful. Uh, if you can memorize all those sutta lists of the 10 this and the seven that, and have them actually come to mind at the right time, that's huge, actually. And memorization of the texts, um, which is a completely analytical function of mind to use language and memory, that was how they were transmitted for the first 500 years before they were written down. And after that, they were read, also analytical in some ways, although there are other ways to read. So 
Uh, we're we're going to do more on this skillful reflection in future sessions. This is a little bit of an introductory session. And we'll also go beyond this into deeper ways of using this same function of the mind, but not in a kind of a surface level logical way. So there are ways, for example, to do uh, meditative investigation in a way that uh, uses the body, uses a deeper intuitive function of the mind, but is still about um, discriminating what's this, what's that, dividing things up, uh, looking at what's important and what isn't, making evaluations and decisions. All of that can be done from a place that's not only up here, um, but is more integrated through the system. It's the same function, but done more uh, in a more integrated way. So we'll look at that also. For now, though, um, just as a little introduction and to let us use a sutta and look at a list, you know, that's got to be familiar. Um, I wanted to point toward one of the discourses where the Buddha talks about what we place authority in. Um, so I'm going to share my screen. This one. So this is... Um, there's a sutta where he talks about how there are five ways that we decide to trust something or to uh, agree with something or to place authority in something. And they're listed here and I'll, I'll explain what they are. Um, the first one is, is trust. So we just decide, this has to do kind of with who told it to us. So we decide, well, you know, I think this, this person is, um, a medical authority, and so I'm going to believe what they say about the coronavirus because of their credentials. Um, this is a perfectly valid way of placing, of deciding to give someone authority. Um, approval has to do with whether or not what we're taking in accords with our values, in a sense. So we check, you know, well, you know, I value honesty, and this this seems very honest, and so you know, this I'm going to agree with this, or this resonates with the way I like to see the world, so I'm going to believe it. Uh, this happens all the time, also more than we more than we think. Sometimes, you know, we might think we're being very rational, but actually, underneath, we have an emotional resonance with what's going on. So this is an emotional sense of trusting something that we feel is right. Uh, oral tradition, the sutta says oral tradition. We could also just say tradition. This is a cultural way of knowing. So, you know, here in America, we have certain ways, certain things that are valued. We value entrepreneurship, we value independence, we value um, standing up and speaking your mind. These are not valued in every culture, but they're valued here. And so we, we decide that things are in accord with that or something that are, are authoritative or we could trust. So that's a sort of a cultural way of knowing. The first two are emotional or affective. This one is cultural. The last two are cognitive. So um, reasoning or logic. So, you know, I've worked this out. I've followed the trail. It makes sense to me. I've, um, uh, this is something that we figure out for ourselves. You know, I've gone through, I've done the reasoning, I've come to this conclusion, and therefore I, I think this is right. And if, if you want me to think differently, you have to uh, upend my logic somehow because I'm placing authority in that. Um, and then there's reflective acceptance, which means that I do the same thing, but with something that you tell me. So I think about somebody presents an argument, um, they give a, a talk at, a, at a, a presentation at a conference, and I think to myself, do I agree with their data? Do I think they analyzed it correctly? Yes. 
I think so. Um, I'm going to agree with their conclusions because it, it seems like it all makes sense. So these are um, five ways. The Buddha actually gave this teaching 2,500 years ago to a, a Brahmin who came and, and challenged him on something. Um, so it's interesting that I'm going to stop sharing so I can see you better. Um, so long ago, the Buddha already had laid out kind of how we how we place authority, how we trust things. And I don't think this list of five is meant to be exhaustive, especially since there are other suttas where he gives longer lists. He has, there's another one where he gives a list of 10 and another one where he gives a list of three um, ways that we trust things. But um, it's interesting to note that, um, you know, this is a, a, actually a relevant spiritual question how we place authority in things, how we decide. I mean, it has to do with how, what spiritual teachings you will accept also. Um, somehow you've all decided this class is worth coming to. It might be interesting to see inside what that was for you. Um, so in our culture, at least, those last two have tremendous authority, um, although the other ones are all important also. So you might say, well, which one does he approve of? <laughs> so um, let's go back. I have a quote from the sutta on the next slide. He actually says, none of them. <laughs> These five things may turn out in two different ways, here and now. Now something may be fully accepted out of trust, yet it may be empty, hollow, and false. But something else may not be fully accepted out of trust, and yet it may be factual, true, and unmistaken. And then he says the same for the other. Something may be fully approved of. It might be well transmitted. That's the cultural one. It might be well reasoned, and it might be well reflected upon. And yet it may be false. Or it may not be all those things, and yet it may be true and unmistaken. So he um, sets up these sort of five ways of knowing, and we all try to, you know, we all sort, if we have analytical minds, we all have already figured out which ones we use when and which are the most important to us. And then the Buddha says, well, actually, um, none of these is completely reliable. He says they may turn out two different ways. Uh, so, that, so in the end, none of them are reliable, and I think we can agree with that. Does anybody think any of those is 100% reliable? I don't, um, and and yet they're useful. He doesn't he doesn't say therefore you should throw them all out. He actually we'll get to that later, but he he says it's okay. Um, one side note I want to make is that the Buddha doesn't perceive um, in this teaching at least a sort of a fight between the emotional side and the rational side. He just lists them all as different ways that we would know, and then he says they're all unreliable. So he doesn't try to raise one above the other. He doesn't try to say, oh, the, the heart is more important than the head, or so the head is needed to control the passions of the heart. All these issues that we have in Western philosophy are, are kind of not there in Buddhism. Um, it takes a while to unlearn this as, as a Westerner studying Buddhism. Um, so that's just a little side note that I like to put in. So you can then ask quite reasonably, what is reliable? You know, does the Buddha have some teaching? And and he does. This is a long sutta, and I don't have we don't have time to go through the whole thing. If you want to read it and you know how to look up suttas, this is Majjhima Nikaya number ninety-five, called the Chonki Sutta. Um, 
But essentially, later in the text, he says that what is, is authoritative and that one comes through through meditative, meditative practice is something that he calls direct experience. Um, in this particular sutta, he doesn't use that phrase. What he uses it in other suttas, he uses something like knowing with the body, something like that in this in MN95. Um, but essentially direct experience, so we might say in more modern language or experiential knowledge, so things, things where we've done it, <laughs> we, we did it, we experienced it, and we can see this also in our own experience, our own practice, is that, you know, we can learn something or we can agree with something or we can figure something out logically, but what really matters is that we did it, <laughs> and, you know, somebody can tell you all about swimming, and you can agree with it, or you can love it, or hate it, or read a, a book about swimming, but none of that is the same as actually getting in the water and swimming. There's a different thing, right? Uh, that gives you a different level of authority about it, too. If someone says, well, swimming is always terrible, and you've had a great experience swimming, you can say, no, it isn't always terrible, I, and I'm not going to be convinced of that. I, I've done it. Uh, so that's a little bit of a silly example. But in the same way, um, this direct experience of actually living something is what the Buddha ultimately says is the only reliable authority. Um, we may not know exactly what direct experience is yet or have a clear idea how it functions in our life, um, and that's fine. Or, or you may have quite a bit if you've practiced for a while or if that makes sense to you. But I would say that even if you do, it can continue to evolve for a long time. So whatever understanding you have of direct experience, consider that we're going we're gonna to be deepening that during this course and helping to link that to this analytical mind, using it as a, a balance of our analytical mind. So then... Um, These other five ways of knowing that are listed there um, are still valuable. Uh, like, for example, the Buddha places um, importance in having trust, or sometimes he uses the word faith, in a teacher uh, on the path. You know, when we have doubt, or especially when we get to the parts of the path that are challenging, um, and we may, we may very well need the strength or wisdom of somebody outside of ourselves until we develop that for ourselves. So he, he values the role of a teacher on the path. And he also values the role explicitly of reflective acceptance, number five. So trust, number one, and reflective acceptance, number five, he names in a number of suttas as critical to the path. So that says that we are never supposed to take these teachings out of blind faith. That's one of the reasons that so many analytical people come to the Dharma is that uh, it doesn't ask that. It doesn't, as and some people have had experiences in other spiritual traditions where th that was asked of them, and it's hard. It can be hard um, if it doesn't quite resonate for you. And so it's important also to note that the Buddha said, no, you, reflective acceptance is actually an important step of the path. You have to read these teachings, hear them, think about them, and decide at some level internally that you're going to buy into them. <laughs> um, you may not have direct experience yet. It doesn't matter. Um, so somehow through some combination of trusting a teacher and deciding for yourself that it does make sense, those two together 
bring your head and your heart to the path and you decide, I'm going to try it. I'm going to sit or I'm going to go on a retreat or something. And so um, just because I've called these methods unreliable uh, and your logical mind is unreliable, <laughs> I don't want you to think that that means it's not useful. It is. And so, um, yeah. So does that make sense in general? This, um, yeah. So there's a place for the analytical mind and there's, um, it's even considered necessary in some way to, to bring that in. And then the question is what, what else can come when we do come to the cushion and decide to do that? Um, so are there any questions at this point? I thought we would meditate uh, at that, if there aren't any questions. Okay. I have a question. Please, yeah. I, it has to do with like knowing with the body. Mm -hmm. And you know, you've, you've had, or I've had experiences where your gut kind of tells you something's just not right or, mm -hmm. is that what is meant by knowing with the body? I think that's an aspect of it. Um, many of us have had experiences, particularly maybe in the ethical realm. Um, and gut sense is, is, of course, a phrase in the West, but it's, it's pretty literal. There can be a feeling in the stomach of like nausea or something or flutters or something. Um, often when we're in an ethical situation, I don't know if that's what you're referring to, but like sometimes if we're leaning toward lying, for example, something in us is going, uh, as we're doing it. Um, and that's a, that's a feeling that we can learn to use in practice, that sense of, um, we're going to talk about that actually um, next session, kind of an ethical sense related to the body. But yes, I think that's one aspect of it. And I think there are other aspects also of knowing the body. Does that help? Okay, good. Well, um, then I would like to, yeah, I would like to, for us to do a meditation. So if, um, so please find a posture that is upright and also relaxed. One where you'll be able to sit for a little while. And if you're comfortable doing so, you can close your eyes. And just allow your attention to come inward. You might begin by feeling the connection to where you're sitting or your feet on the floor if you're standing and just feel that contact and that stability. The seat and the, and the feet or the legs. Often we have three points of contact. Our seat and our feet or our hands and our feet. And just feeling the stability of three-pointed contact. and allowing yourself maybe to let go into that and be supported by what you're, where you're sitting. 
some sense of trust of that you'll be held up. And then perhaps on the next exhale, maybe a little deeper breath, and then on the exhale, allowing any obvious tension to soften in the body. And consciously bringing attention through, through the body, so maybe softening the muscles of the face, the forehead, around the eyes, around the mouth, the jaw, having a soft expression on the face, softening the eyes in the eye sockets, even inside the brain. Down through the shoulders, maybe letting the shoulder blades slide down the back. Down the arms to the hands. And into the torso, softening the chest, heart, the lungs. Feeling the front, back, and sides of the rib cage. Releasing the diaphragm. down into the belly, letting the belly be soft, round, the muscles of the low back, down to the hip joints, groin muscles, into the thighs, down through the calves and the ankle joints and the feet, just encouraging softening. And as the body softens a bit, we may still feel the uprightness of the spine. Just let the body soften around that.
And as the body becomes a, a little bit more still, we may feel the breath as a movement through the body. You can connect with the, the very elemental sensations of the breath. So not as an idea or a concept, but the, the touch of the air on the nostrils or the upper lip. A sense of coolness as it flows into the nasal passages. Maybe feeling it into the throat down to the chest or maybe even the belly. On the in-breath, there's a sense of expansion and movement, maybe a shift of clothing against the skin. The out-breath, it's a, a different kind of movement, softening, release, maybe coolness in the nasal passages. So it's a whole myriad of simple sensations, elemental sensations that we can just tune into. They happen by themselves. This kind of experience is closer to direct experience. More direct. And if the mind enters into thought, gets onto a thought train, as soon as we notice that, of course, we're, we're back and we can allow the, that sensation in the body to come back into our awareness. And it's interesting to note the difference the difference between this direct experience and the, the experience of thinking. It's a different realm. 
So just starting to attune the system to understand the difference between those. Of course, there are other things in experience. There may be emotions, intentions, memories. Actually, there can be direct experience of emotion and even of thought. Full presence while there's thought. But it's a little bit harder do that. So we begin with the body, which is always in the present moment. But really any experience can be known simply and directly. Any experience. When we find that the mind is no longer in contact, direct contact with experience, that's fine. We can just start again, or sometimes we can take a little scan through the body and encourage the softening of any tension that may have built up. That's fine to do.
beginning to feel at ease with the flow of direct experience, being okay with just staying with that, with the breath, the body. Simple. So good, we're, we're starting to get a sense of what this um, more direct experience is. And I, as I said before, even if we've um, been familiar with this for a while, my experience is that the understanding of it keeps evolving over time. And so um, we can keep learning more and more about what it is to be more direct, more deeply into the experience of the moment. Um, so I, I thought at this point we would um, do some breakout groups to give uh, you guys a chance to uh, talk a little bit among yourselves. Um, and I thought we would take this um, idea of more direct experience to whatever degree that you connected with it in that in that sitting. And you know, we might call it something like real-time connection 
to body and mind, something that is changing and flowing, but being able to stay with it, the mind. Um, so the, the question that I, I thought you might talk about with each other is to what, how familiar is this to you? You know, um, to whatever degree you've experienced it, whether it was just for the last 20 minutes or if you have a long-term practice, how familiar is this kind of direct experience to you on the cushion and in daily life? And what role does that kind of knowing have in your life, if any? Um, you know, what role does it have? So how familiar is this to you and on the cushion and in daily life? And what role does this kind of knowing have in your life? And that's a little bit, I know that's a little bit of a vague question almost, but I'm, I'm saying it that way so that there's a range of answers that people could have. And you might be interested to see what a couple of other folks say about that. So let me see how many people we have here. Well, I can't, let's see, I have to, we have eight, eight other boxes, <laughs> even though there's nine other people, I can do this. Um, hang on for a moment while I set up the breakout rooms. Let's do it this way. Yes, this will work. Okay, so does everybody understand the question? Um, and then what I, what I thought it would be nice is if we just let each person um, speak for about 30 seconds, about a minute, and I'll, I'll send a little written note to the group uh, saying to go to the next person. And, um, and that, that way you'll all have a chance to speak. And if somebody gets to the end of what they're saying and it's, I haven't sent the message yet, um, it's okay, you can just rest in the silence. Um, we can be comfortable with that. You don't need to go on to the next person or fill it up. So see if that works. And, um, and we'll meet back after that. Okay, so welcome back. And um, how was the timing? Uh, was that enough time? Not enough time? Shrugging a little bit, a little too short. <laughs> okay, yeah, sorry about that. I realized that. Well, there's a trade-off, right? Sometimes people don't want to talk for three minutes or something. It's a very long time. So, um, I'm curious, though, uh, if you have anything that you're willing to share in the in the larger group to 
share some of the wisdom with the others or, or with me. I didn't get to hear any of them. So I'm curious what came up. How familiar is this way of knowing and what role does it play in your life? You can just unmute yourself when you're ready. Yeah, Fred. Um, one thing that came to me just sort of after I shared, I guess, but was um, how, uh, how I'm really uh, not sure I can trust my direct experience a lot of the time, or um, if, if what I think I'm experiencing is actually what's happening. There's so, I have so many biases, so many conditioned thoughts and reactivity. You know, I just don't know what is real sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, so that interferes with my, uh, you know, understanding of what is my direct experience. You know, I often lie to myself or see the world through filters. And so I'm not really sure, you know, what's real. Yeah, that's great. Um, I mean, it's not great in terms of our experience, but it's, it's um, something that does happen when we rely a lot on thinking. It, it, we have less of a clear connection to, to that. And also when we're mistrustful of trust, you know, we don't like to trust, we would rather figure it out or be clear. Um, sometimes that interferes with trusting ourselves and um, that's, an, that's something to work with. But thank you for naming that. That's not everyone is quite aware of that. So, yeah. Any other comments? Sujata. I was going to say in our group, we talked about um, um, for me to, I think the reason I was so drawn to the Buddha's teachings was also the direct experience of it. Um, to me, it was brilliant because what he wrote and what was happening to me in my suffering or my way of overcoming it um, came through direct experience and not by reading and trying to analyze it. And as you were leading me through the meditation, um, I was sharing with my group that when um, my analytical mind is turned on, it interferes with my direct experience sometimes. Um, so. Yeah, it can. Um, certainly trying to think about has a way of taking us out and not being as in touch. And the Buddha is pointing again and again, as it was in the sutta, to getting more in touch with the, the direct experience. So that's, that makes a lot of sense, what you said. Any other comments? I really enjoyed the second question because I never contemplated the role that direct experience plays. And like everything else, it changes a lot. And yeah. I never thought about how my direct experience plays a different role in my life. And sometimes it's as small as like just trying to calm myself or like ground myself. And then sometimes this plays like a role of like joy to be really in something, or sometimes it plays a role that's deeply connected with the past. And it's interesting to see how that role tends to correlate as I was sharing with the group. Um, that role tends to correlate with how involved I am with my past. Interesting. Yeah, so you've pointed to another dimension of this 
teaching about ways that we know things or trust things, which is that we use different ones at different times, including direct experience we use at different times and in different ways. And it's, it's just interesting to see how we've conditioned ourselves to do that. I don't think we're meant to suddenly decide, oh, well, the Buddha points at direct experience, so I just need to do that 100% of the time. Uh, I don't think so, and, and you didn't imply that. But it's, it's an interesting self-exploration to see where we trust one or the other. It's also looking a little dark, so hang on. <laughs> Are there any other um, comments from the discussion that stand out? Elisa, are you leaning forward? Yeah, it just it just settled the, the this conversation and the discussion and and meditation just set off a whole chain of thinking and remembrances in my mind. And there's certainly times when I've used direct, you know, direct experience has been very powerful for me, not so much in meditation, but in some other aspect of my life. And it was very powerfully know, learning to know through my body. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, but there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of things sort of rolling around in there right now. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, it's, um, especially when we have a very associative mind, it's like we get a little trigger and suddenly it's like, oh, it goes with that, 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 you know, it's like <laughs> there's this whole structure there. I've experienced that. But it's also true that people who have analytical minds or who know how to use that part of their mind um, can also be quite good at concentration, for example. You might think, oh, no way, my mind is everywhere. But, you know, we have some ability to get into something, right? And I, um, you know, you get into whatever you're thinking about. If only that could be directed, say, toward a body sensation like the breath, that's the road to developing concentration practices, uh, or it could be. There are other ways to do it. Um, and, and it is possible that we've had also a lot of direct experience through something physical, sports or music or cooking, um, walking, something. Um, can be a time when uh, when we've touched into that. So just to be aware maybe in the coming week of when you're using direct and when not. Val, are you leaning forward? Yeah. Well, just what you just last, what, what you were just referring to, because I've been athletic all my life, so that's part of it. But right. what the other thing, just while you were talking was, um, the direct direct experience of, of deep grieving of mm. had you know like eight eight years in a row of, of really deep loss and deep grieving and that talk about direct experience that's <laughs> profound emotions have a, a physical component if, yeah if yeah. you allow if you allow yourself to go there with it tremendous um yeah that's where i've learned a lot through grief yeah yeah, yeah. me just struck yeah. me talking <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes um, life makes us <laughs> look at things besides our analytical mind uh, through, through experiences that we've had. We've all had a unique trajectory to get to this 
moment. So, yeah. Okay. Are there any um, are there any other questions at this point? About any of the material or anything? Okay, you can always ask it uh, at any time. But I wanted to go on to talk a little bit about um, discursive thought. And I think we all know what that is. It's the thought that is, you know, related to conversations or debating or arguing or figuring something out. And we've decided on the cushion that now that we're quiet, we've sat down, we can really figure this out. Something in the mind decides this would be interesting. Um, and this this happens a lot. It's not it's not anything wrong or bad. We've been practicing this for a long time. Uh, we've been practicing using our thinking mind, um, and so it's not surprising that that's what comes up when we do it. It's sort of a habit. Um, but you know what we can the image that's often used for meditation is that we're standing in a train station, and our job is to watch the trains that go by, but not to get on them. And we often find ourselves on a train, don't we? So it's, um, and then we're looking, we realize, oh my gosh, I'm seven stations away. It's okay. You just get off at the next station and try again to stay in that station. Um, and so, you know, getting caught in this kind of discursive thought of uh, that, that really just feeds on itself, essentially, it's no longer connected to the experience of the moment, but it's, it's rolling on its own. Um, that does actually, that particular use of the analytical mind does impede the development of serenity and insight. So that's the part that you experience as an obstacle. Um, and so it, you know, it, it is not really part of wisdom. Um, however, how we work with that or attempt to work with that is very important. So working at it with aversion uh, adds more aversion to the mind. It doesn't, it's not a, an effective approach. So I, I like to say that with discursive thought, the aim is to lessen the intensity of it. So let's not think in terms of ending it or stopping it or redirecting it or replacing it with meta or whatever um, kind of strategizing we've been trying. Let's start by lessening the intensity of it. And that can, that can help. And the results of, you know, how do we know that we've lessened the intensity? the the effect of that is that first of all there's less urgency to the thinking it doesn't have that as much of a push to it that kind of feeling and also it leaves less of a mark so um, for example when if, if we do get caught up in some discursive thought if it's not very intense thought when we come back uh, we're able to kind of just drop it and we say oops thinking again and just pick up our breath or whatever, instead of, oh, I was thinking again, and I don't know if I want to let go of it, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. It just, it just sort of doesn't leave as much of a mark. Yeah, it happened, but it, you know, no big deal. Um, and I think that's a real sign of success, actually. If we have a strong thinking mind, thoughts are going to keep coming. I'm sorry to tell you, <laughs> they're going to just keep coming, because that's what the mind does. But there comes a point where it's, it almost doesn't, it's not so bad. I want to say it doesn't matter, but it's not so bad because, you know, we go along with the breath for a little while and then whoop, we're thinking again and then we come back and we just pick up the breath. You just, you know, you only lost exactly the amount of time that you were thinking um, as, as opposed to that time plus all the time it took you to recover from that. 
So, um, and, and thinking like that, that's kind of light and just comes in and then ooh, fades out, that's actually not, not too bad. Um, I wouldn't worry about that kind of thought. I have that all the time. <laughs> I've sat for a long time. Uh, so it's um, lessening of the intensity, I think, is a good way to think. So then the, the question is, well, how do we do that? Uh, so I want to offer just a few strategies um, to work with in your meditation. And by the way, I'm going to send a, a link to the um, guided meditation that we just did. It will be, it was recorded, I recorded it separately. So um, if you want to use that during this week, you can. Um, so ways to work with discursive thought. These are not complete, but um, the first one named in the suttas is mindfulness of breathing. <laughs> There's a sutta where the Buddha says that um, developing mindfulness of breathing is the most effective method of uh, lessening the intensity of discursive thought. And he gives this instruction to a, a new monk who's having trouble with his thinking mind. And he says, try the breath. So I take that seriously. I think the breath is an excellent object for meditation. Um, it's, it's actually the method by the way, that the Buddha used. The only, one of the few methods that we know the Buddha used. I don't know what he was doing the night of his awakening, that's not recorded, but there are later teachings where he says, after he was awakened, he says that the type of meditation he was doing was on the breath. So if it's good enough for the Buddha, it's good enough for me. Uh, and so I encourage this. Now, it's not the right object for everybody. There are people who have issues with the breath or it's hard to get to the body or something, but um, try it. See if that's, you know, maybe with a little confidence, you can decide if you, if trust the number one method out of those five, you trust the Buddha uh, as that being a reasonable approach. Um, other, there are other approaches listed in the suttas though. And another one that's um, common is to uh, turn to another, just gently turn to another subject. So we realize that the thought that's happening is not helping us. It's just about yesterday's lunch or, you know, whatever, what we're planning for our work tomorrow, whatever it is that we're doing. And we, we just realize, well, that's, um, that's not helpful to me. So we very gently put the mind on something useful. It could be the breath or it could be the body sensations, or it could be um, even a skillful kind of thinking, like we could recall um, a verse from a sutta that we've memorized. You guys can all memorize things, right? So, you know, you could memorize uh, the, the Dhammapada verse that you know, it says um, something like, mind is the forerunner of all experience. You know, all experiences made by mind, preceded by mind, led by mind, etc. That's not the exact order that it was set in. But, um, you know, something that we've memorized, we could bring in Put the mind on that it's a skillful kind of thinking and then use that to kind of transition back into direct experience like a little gateway so that can work well for thinking and then there's also um, on a different line we can uh, turn to what I call a, a kind of the underlying energetic or emotional cause or condition for that thinking. We're never doing discursive thought um, randomly. 
or without any support, just, you know, sort of on its own. Everything is conditioned. And there, so you can sort of open the mind and say, what else is here? If the mind is really obsessed with some kind of thought, there is something else going on. It could be that there's a bodily sensation, like your knee hurts, and you're thinking about that. Um, but it could be more subtle. Like it could be that there is actually some anxiety, and that's why you're planning. Anxiety is a major cause of planning. And so, but if you're not aware of that, like you're sort of not attuned to that emotional thing going on, you'll just plan and plan and plan. And you can let go of planning again and again, but it's just going to keep coming back if that underlying condition of being anxious is there. So you don't have to then turn and say, well, I have to get rid of the anxiety. Just opening to that and including the fact that there's some anxiety there uh, will help lessen the intensity of the thought that's coming from it. There are other times when we can't even actually, I mean, I named anxiety, but there can even be energetic experiences producing thought that we can't quite name. Um, and that's okay. Uh, it is something that you could eventually touch, but it may be that at this moment you're so busy thinking or you're, it's in some area of your being that you haven't really opened to or something. Um, and so there's just some energy or tightness, like we may feel a tightness in the shoulder. What is that? I don't know. Um, but you don't have to go in there and burrow in and try to figure it out, but just include energetic experiences in the body as possible mm, co-conspirators in thinking a lot. Uh, so I have found just opening to the energy of the body and trying to settle the energy. You don't have to know exactly what that tightness in the shoulder is to nonetheless very gently and kindly encourage its relaxation or if there's tightness in the chest. I don't know what emotion that might be at this moment, and I don't have to go in and psychoanalyze it or figure it out, but I can um, gently, kindly offer encouragement for my chest to relax. So you can try that. You can breathe through tensions also. There's a tension in the, in the stomach. Breathe all the way down into your legs, then back up through your chest. You know, just even with your imagination, this can be very effective. And it may be that that little tension is something that's contributing to the, to the thought. So busying, re-busying your mind more with the energetic level of the body can also be helpful. So those are some strategies that I, I offer just for your, I don't know which ones will resonate the most, but you can try them out. Um, and we're getting near the end, so I'm, I'm wanting to um, kind of wrap up, but I'll just ask one more time if there are any questions at this point in this sort of session, introducing the topology of the analytical mind. Okay, good. So, um, so just to review, we've started talking about this analytical mind or analytical aspect of mind, which we mostly use quite mundanely. Maybe we used it for our work, or, and we still are, or maybe if we're not uh, working anymore, we still use it to organize our calendar and mostly get through our day, just because that's how we usually operate. Um, but often we're using it in ways that don't necessarily contribute to the spiritual path. So we want to be developing some nuance about how we can uh, use this part of our mind well. And as a first step, 
we recognize that discursive thought is distracting and that there's a difference between that and direct experience. And you can feel the difference. Discursive thought is vague, it's disconnected. It's when you come back, you hardly remember that you had a body. And so it's, you know, we can see that it's a different phenomenon. And so just familiarizing yourself with the different experiences of that. So we can learn to then connect better with the breath or other direct experiences. So looking forward then, um, kind of over the, the other five sessions that we're going to have, I want to offer a um, kind of a mandala of practice methods and understandings that help us map and chart the territory of the analytical mind. And it's not going to be linear. Oh no, says the analytical mind, it's not going to be linear. She's not going to give us step A, B, C. It's okay. It's going to be kind of like a, a portrait and um, we'll approach from different angles each week, painting a total picture of, um, of what this is. And so then we'll be in a better position to um, appreciate how the Buddha was pointing beyond uh, this kind of thinking. Um, so recommendations for developing practice along this, this week. I have a little another slide to share on this. Um, yeah. So first one is just to practice meditation that reduces the intensity of discursive thought and stays with the flow of experience. So we'll use this more direct experience as kind of our guide to learning to do that. And don't expect that in a week you're going to make huge progress and you'll be 80% of the time in your direct experience. If you are, that's great, but it's not necessary. We're just trying to, we're just trying to lessen the intensity. And then one way you can support that in your daily life is to consciously value direct experience when it occurs. You know, it's, it's pretty easy to have it say while you're eating, if you don't read while you're eating, I know some of us do that. Um, so you can, you know, because it's a pretty intense experience to be eating and tasting and, and smelling the food. So that's a good time. Or when you're cooking or when you're in the shower, that's a pretty sensorial experience, right? So we can just um, tr try to rest a little bit in direct experience during that. Um, and then I put in this optional reflection because I know some of us like to think about things. So you could consider, do you know that the earth is round? Of course you know that the earth is round, but do you have any direct experience that the earth is round? So this is not based on trust or logic or what our society says or a picture that somebody else took. Um, do you have direct experience that, or experiential knowledge of the earth being round? So one way you can do this is to write down as many ways as you have encountered the earth being round. Because there's probably a dozen pieces of evidence for that. I assume we all believe this, by the way, and that nobody is a member of the Flat Earth Society, but if anybody is, um, that's okay too. Uh, I don't mind. Um, there is, by the way, still the Flat Earth Society uh, of people who really think it's not true. Um, so you can, you can check. And the only reason they still exist is that there, it isn't really 100%. It's a little hard to have direct experience. Probably you do if you think about it. There are ways. There's you know, half a dozen that I came up with. Um, and, and then maybe 10 or so that uh, weren't so direct. So we'll, if it's of interest, we can talk about it a little bit next week. We don't have a lot of time, but it'll be fun. So 
I don't want you to spend hours and hours on this. The direct experience is more important, but if you like thinking about things. Okay, so um, that was what I had in mind for tonight, is to kind of get us into the territory. Next week, uh, just we'll focus on the, the path of practice and how the analytical mind in particular is related to the three major areas of the path, which you may know from studying Buddhism are sila, samadhi, and panya, or ethical conduct, meditative development, and wisdom. And you know how, how would this kind of mind tend to, to relate to each of those areas of the path? Uh, and we'll again uh, have some practice, some time to practice and some time to discuss. So then I guess final sharing. Um, I will note that um, there's possible to donate to both Insight Santa Cruz and to the teacher um, at these links. And also to point out uh, that this, uh, this Insight Santa Cruz website is fresh and new as of this week. And so if you haven't been there lately, you might want to look and check out the new site. Um, and if you have, uh, then you'll at least know that this is a conscious thing and um, we meant it and it's beautiful and wonderful. So please have a look. And it's nice to see all of you. So I hope to see everyone next week, including maybe some folks who were at the protest tonight. And I'll send a follow-up email um, with the link to the meditation. And I hope you all have a great week of practice. Be well. Thank you, Kim. Well, feel free to unmute and, and say goodbye to folks if you want. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. Bye, everyone. It's nice to meet all of you. Much appreciation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.